Hey everybody, and welcome to the I Am Law podcast. This is Daniel Gershberg, as you probably know. Um, th- this podcast features a interview and actually a discussion I had with Ellie Mistal, who's a writer at Above the Law. It ran about an hour and thirty, an hour and forty minutes, and it's probably the best um, the best podcast that we've done to date, just because of how interesting it was to talk to Ellie about his insights and everything from legal education to the future of law firms to how he got to where he is making a a leap from being a big law associate making a ton of money and and flying to Vegas randomly um, to a writer that was essentially willing to work for free for six months to get where he is now so um, I hope you guys enjoy and as always email me if you guys have any questions comments or want to see any other guests on the show Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the I Am The Law podcast. I am joined by Ellie Mistral. Um, he, I will actually not be doing an intro for him. He's amazing for even uh, coming here to talk with me today. Um, Ellie writes for Above The Law and does so many, so many other things. We're going to talk about the future of law, how law practice is actually going to change, what he thinks about law schools, what he thinks about several attorneys, which I will name by name, um, <laughs> and a bunch of other things. So let me introduce you, and, and why don't you give a brief bio of who the hell you are. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm Ellie. I write mainly dick jokes on the web about lawyers, but occasionally about law schools, too. Um, I'm hated by many law school deans, although some of them like me. Uh, <laughs> and in terms of biographical information, I've been doing it for, let's see, um, six years this uh, past summer, um, which feels longer than it sounds. Um, and I just bought a house in Westchester, which we're very excited about. That's phenomenal. That's phenomenal. So you went to you went to Harvard undergrad, right? Mm-hmm. And then Harvard Business School. Uh, Harvard Law School. Oh, I'm sorry, Harvard Law School. And then you were a top litigator. Uh, you were a litigator, I should say, at a top yeah. firm. I was a litigator at a top firm, yes. And then I was le- there. I was present You, you were at there. Top you, firm were, you were doing things. For and, at least two and a half years. And then you left. And then I left. Okay, why do you hate money? <laughs> why is that? Like, why, what did it do to you? Um, it's not that I hate money. It's that I like myself more. Uh-huh. <laughs> Fine. Fine. Look, I, I worked I worked at Devil Boys in Plimpton, which I always say it's a great firm if you like that kind of thing. Um, they were very nice to me. Their their culture in, in, the, in the community is one of respect and, and, and being kind of above board. They were def- definitely that to me my entire time there. Um, I just didn't really like the work. It wasn't for me. I didn't like the, oh my, I, I, I was not a, 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 I did not enjoy document review. Even when I got better work, I didn't enjoy fact development. I didn't enjoy priv, priv, priv logs. Um, I didn't really enjoy researching on Westlawn. You know, stop me when I say something that I liked. I didn't enjoy... Um, sitting second chair in depositions very quietly taking notes while somebody not even that's the thing when you're when you second chair a deposition for a big law firm you're not even taking notes while somebody else asks questions you're taking notes while somebody else tells somebody else not to answer somebody else's questions (laughs) sounds about right um that that wasn't for me it turned out (laughs) okay right Um, and and the hours weren't, weren't weren't for me you know i think my first year i built 24, 2,500 hours. My second year, I built 28. Um, my third year, I was on track for the same. Um, that's 2,800 hours. That's not a life. That's not. That's a lot of. That's a lot of weekends. That's a lot of long nights. That's a lot of early mornings. That's not. That's it, and it wasn't. You know, I have a family. I, there are other things I wanted. What I what I learned at Dev Boys was this. It turns out that there is nothing that I want to do for 10 hours straight. I don't want to eat for ten hours straight. I want to have sex for ten hours straight. I After ten hours, I need to, I need to change it. You need to, you need to leave. Yeah, at some point and be done with it. Um, 
you when you were in law school well, let me let me let me backtrack. Why the hell did you want to go to law school in the first place? Because I, I always talk about this. I had no idea why I wanted to go. Um, I was just poli sci and philosophy, and uh, I was going to just be broken on the street, just talking about Manuel Kant, um, and that that wasn't going to work well for my Jewish family. So I decided, <laughs> obviously, I'm going to law school. But did you have these sort of delusions of grandeur, of changing the world, or what? What made you go there? I also majored in government and political philosophy. Nice. Um, Money. My, Money. My guy was Plato. I really loved. I, lo- I loved his basically authoritarian view on the world. I thought that was really interesting. Sure. Um, I had big dreams about shaping the world in my own um, enlightened despot, despotic kind of way, and that was going to be through politics. My father was a was a local politician. I thought I would go into politics. All the politicians that I knew had law degrees. All sorry, all the Congress people I knew had law degrees. Right. All the crappy local politicians, like my father, did not have law degrees. <laughs> it made sense. Right. <laughs> I yeah. got a good score on the LSAT. Right in. Yeah. And then you know when Harvard accepts you, like there there's, it's it's one of those things that's a little bit hard to turn out. You know what my, my at the I know <laughs> I know I went to New York Law. I know Harvard was my safety. <laughs> I just decided like, I didn't need a scholarship money. Yeah. <laughs> at that crucial moment, right? I was ba- I ended up basically choosing. Um, between Harvard Law School or taking a job doing assistant press secretary, um, doing assistant press for Hillary Clinton's first senatorial campaign. Um, my father's from Long Island, so I'd be like the guy on Long Island doing your press, right? You know, whatever. Um, and you know, Harvard Law School was Harvard Law School. Hillary was offered me, I think it was like a stipend of like three hundred dollars a week, which was great money for that yes. <laughs> kind of stuff. And then you know, maybe if she wins, I could do press for her home office in the city, like. It, <laughs> It was the kind of that staffer life. And in my stupid little brain, little 22-year-old brain, I was like, you know what? The Hillary Clinton job will always be there. But this law degree, this substantial, weighty thing, that's the thing that I need to... Right. So it started from there on. So people make that bad, the, that people make bad choices. People make bad choices. That, that, was, that was my... People make bad choices. Yeah, what I were your, spent seven years trying to dig myself out of that. Which is fine. Which is okay. What were the classmates like there? Were they were they cool? Because I I mean, the, I, I just know Harvard Law from the movies. <laughs> um, I don't know what actually happened. Were there geniuses surrounding you? Was it like a crazy atmosphere? Was it, you know... I mean, genius douchebag, sure. Okay, they're, good. They're, 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 so it's confirmed. <laughs> so it's confirmed. That's fine. Look, every, every... Harvard's huge, right? And so I, I made good friends there. I still have good friends for... Right. Who went there? For any community that big, you're going to find your own little cadre of people who are douchey, just like you are. Yeah, and you can run with them, and right. then it's you against the larger community of general douches that you don't like. Correct. So I, I found my little niche, my little niche while I was there. Um, Harvard Law does a lot, does a lot of actually good theater stuff. They write their own. You know, every every law school has their own kind of law review or parody. Harvard is very respected. I wrote for that um, two of my three years. I acted in that all three years there. I wrote for that two of my three years there. Had a great part my my final year that involved me kind of going because Harvard's you know, it's it's very competitive. So right. like part of the show after the intermission was that like you would go through the audience. This kind of drunken clown character would go through the audience and kind of make fun, kind of in real time of the people who were in the audience. Um, and I got to do that my three all year, which was great. I got That's two, amazing. I got two drinks thrown on me during the show, which was, <laughs> you know, you're doing something right. <laughs> drinks thrown at you by Harvard grads. Yes. So you know, I had I had my friends, and and you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't call law school bad. You know, my wife was there. Yep. We weren't married at the time, but you know, that was good. Yep. So so it wasn't it wasn't a hellish experience. Right. And the people there, but the people there were like you would expect. There were people that were like me. There were people who were not like me. It's like any other place. 
you leave. So you're working as a litigator, right? So you hate your life. You hate what you're doing. Um, you're probably making good money. I'm making great money. You're making bank. I'm making more money than anybody in my family had ever made. Killing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you decide, no, no more. Right. Which is ballsy. And I'm not just saying that. It's ballsy because a lot of people, so a lot of my buddies work in large law firms and they absolutely hate what they do, but they stay because their you know, significant other has now bought a place in Tribeca and everything is getting really tight and they need a bonus really bad and can I loan them some money? No, John, no. But, golden <laughs> handcuffs. Right, it's, it's exactly what it is, golden handcuffs. So how do you, how does Above the Law come into this? How do you decide, you know what, shit, I'm actually gonna quit my six-figure salary and start blogging. Yeah, the origin story. So the yeah. origin story does not work without my wife. Okay. Right? Like it's, it's I, I Good do. Man. Good man. <laughs> It's a it's a ballsy maneuver, but it's much less ballsy when you have somebody backing you up. Right. And so, um, I actually I graduated earlier than my wife. I was out there working. We were I was supporting both of us on our salary um, for about a year year and a half um, before she kind of came online. She was working also. She ended up working also at a, at a big firm. So after I'd been there for almost two years, because of various things, she wasn't fully earning what that big law number until I had been there for about two years. And then after kind of. I wouldn't so it wasn't scrimping and saving, but after being somewhat tight, somewhat paycheck to paycheck, supporting two people, one of them still in law school, living in an apartment in Manhattan, do, on just one salary, suddenly she comes online with her money, and now, Done. now we're having those times, right? Done. <laughs> right. Done. So, the the I'm doing I'm working on a case, and it's just after she started, so we we have money to burn, right? And. The I, it's it's a it's a Monday and I'm there and you know one of those cases where you just you just walk in you just grinding documents, fifteen hours pass you go home rinse repeat right just like a Monday or a Tuesday I'm in my office I'm grinding through these papers, and the partner on the case kind of comes in and he's like hey what are you doing here and I'm like what do you mean doing here same thing I've been doing for the past thirteen right we settled yesterday I was like what nobody t- oh I. <laughs> Not to make a joke about it, but I guess you literally didn't get the memo. <laughs> so I'm sitting there, I'm like murderous. Like, I'm going to take a fire hose this entire... Wow, you look... I'm really sorry, man. You should go home. You should take the rest of the week off. You've worked hard. You take the rest of the week off. I was like... Mm-hmm. So I get in the cab. And my, I, I was, you know, Devil's in Midtown. I'm going up to the Upper East Side where I live. I get in the cab. And I'm halfway there, and I say, actually, take the take the bridge, take the bridge, take me to LaGuardia. Took me to LaGuardia, I bought a full fare, round trip ticket to Vegas. No shit. Because <laughs> I could. Right. Texted my wife from the tarmac, um, going to Vegas. <laughs> you texted your wife from the tarmac, hey, babe, had a rough day on my way to Vegas. That That's correct? We can confirm that? We'll see you soon. Oh, Okay. Okay. And so I came back. A, I was happy to be still married by the time. I right. Did she respond? What was her response? She wasn't happy. Right. She wasn't happy. Was, okay. She wasn't happy. It wasn't a great day in the mm-hmm. Mistal yeah. family. Uh, <laughs> that did not go over smoothly. Totally normal. <laughs> <laughs> Got to do this bender in Vegas, hon. But it was a really big day for me in terms of quitting because th- that's the kind of lifestyle that you have. When you have that kind of money right. and you have that kind of job that's kind of stressful and happy you spend the money not to save it or to like at least if you're like me you spend that money on these kind of small expensive moats of happiness right you grab it where you can find it and that costs a lot and that's not the kind of person i want to be i don't want to be the kind of person that's going off you know you don't want to be that kind of guy you don't want to waste that kind of money 
And that was really the beginning and the end for me, where I was like, you know what, now that she's online, A, we've already proven that we can live on her salary. Right. Like, we've already proven we can live on one of these salaries. And two, we don't need this. <laughs> like, right. We might not be, I might not be ready as a human to, like, have this much money in this particular job at the same time. Maybe like, because maybe. you're on the way to Vegas by yourself <laughs> on a Monday, perhaps. <laughs> yes. But, okay, continue. So you're, so um, you're What do you do in Vegas? Hold on. Can we focus on Vegas for a Craps. Week? Craps and poker. You're, oh, so you play. You're playing. You're there. <laughs> you're you're there. in it. You're I started it. to lose money, so I went to little, my little tip. This is, I don't know if this is still true now that you know the online poker craze has really changed the landscape. But back in the day, you could go to Excalibur and you could just sit there with a ham sandwich and grind it out That's against it. soccer moms and other people, and you could just make bank. And so I had like a thirteen-hour thing at Excalibur at a five-dollar at a, at a, at a one-dollar two-dollar table. Where I cashed out with a thousand dollars on you know a fifty dollar buy in. Like, this is phenomenal. Just, just grinded it out. This is phenomenal. <laughs> it was a good day. Yeah, it's not a bad um, day. Okay, so so okay, but on right, the way so right, so I so I come back. I kind of realize you know I think I'm out of here. So we talk about it a little bit. I go back to work. I I, I probably worked another three, four, five months after that. Okay. Um, and came kind of came home one day and it's just like we've talked about this. I'm done. I'm I I can't be there anymore. My wife was like, all right, no, we've. Go in there, and so the next day I went in there. Told told my guy, told told my mentor. He was a really nice guy. He was he, we're still friends. We still we still talk. He was really uh, the partner who kind of hired me and my and mentored me. Um, was always in my corner. He's rich, isn't he? Um, he's very yeah, lovely. I knew he was rich. Um, you know, and he's like, hey, I understand. I think you're just burnt out. Right. Um, so why don't you take six months off and then see if you want to come back afterwards? Wow. You come back, we'll give you the prorated share of your bonus because it was I was this is June. Sure. So I was like, come back in the end, by the end of the year, we'll give you the prorated portion of your bonus. But I think you're just burnt out. I was like, man, see, no, I don't, I don't come in here and say I'm going to quit and not mean I'm going to quit. Right. right. You're going to quit. Right. If you want to give me some more money, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take it. it. I'll take it. But I'm still going to quit. So I, I, that that was my that was my last day. That was a Friday. The Monday in the mor- the Monday morning. I, sorry, that was a Friday. The Saturday, I went to the SPC. I bought a dog. She's still with us. Nice. Uh, Very nice. Brought her home that Monday, and I haven't. I basically haven't been in that building since. You do crazy shit on Mondays. You realize right? <laughs> your Monday like is my Saturday. I've had a I, once. I have a whole weekend to think about things. Like, <laughs> you're on. You're on. Vegas, I come back puppies. with some plans. Yeah, you don't. You don't give a shit. Um, so yeah, so I didn't have another job. I just I, I quit to sit on my couch and figure out what I want. Because you figure like Harvard, Harvard again. Like you, you're kind of on this one track, right? You know, of like doing what you're supposed to do. Right. You know, mommy says do your homework. You do your homework. Daddy says, "Get good grades. You get good grades. You get into Harvard. You get into, like you're on one path, and then when you have an opportunity to get off that path, the first thing that I thought was important was just to kind of sit, sit with myself for a little bit, and and figure out what the hell I want to do in my life." You, let's say, no wife, right? Let's say yeah. all things the same. You're not married. You're making the money you're making there. Do you leave? Probably, but in a very different way, right? So, for instance, I probably stayed on my bonus. Right, right, <laughs> right. <laughs> you cash that in. I, I probably just suck it up for another six months and save for my bonus. Also, I think the biggest difference is that I I stayed in our, I was able to stay in my apartment in Manhattan and whatever. Sure. I probably move. Like, you I probably move. I don't. I don't know if I move all the way back to Long Island, but I certainly don't stay on the Upper East Side. But you essentially, no matter what, you leave, right? Because it's just not for you. I have this belief: everybody has a finite amount of hours that they can build in Big Law. Yeah, and. Depending on how hard you work, you might burn up. The, everybody has a different one. Maybe you have six thousand. Maybe you have eight thousand. Maybe you have ten thousand. Depending on how hard you work, you're going to burn that up over a certain amount of time. But my story of quitting is not actually all that different than most stories of quitting sure. you have. It's sure. 
one day you're like, I'm done. Then you try to re-up it right. for a couple of months, and then you're done done. Listen to Tony Robbins, and then yeah. you're like, you know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this, and you, you know, can't do it anymore. Once, once people are, exactly, once people are unable to do it anymore, they know. You can't chew the leather, and you stop. So you leave. How do you get introduced to Above the Law? How does that happen? Oh, well, so we're going to skip over the... No, don't skip anything. We're going to skip we we'll the part the where I got phase. from 2000, uh, 2006 in Madden to 2032. I want you to go in through Madden. Madden. <laughs> I want you to go through in detail. If you were in GM mode in Madden, <laughs> I want to know why you drafted who you did. Yeah. It's probably Steve Smith during that time. Oh, he was big. He, he was, was big. He was I, was a, I was a giant guy, so we had to get. So I was not. Eli was not good that year, so no. I had to finish him off really quickly. I actually ended up picking up Philip Rivers. He was great for me. That was huge. When he was young, I mean, he's still great. Yeah, but when he was young, he was, he was, young, he was, he was, he was the next, next coming of, uh, yeah. So I did that for six months. Okay. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful. Was your wife pleased about you sitting? Mm. She tolerated it. Please, is too strong a right. word, but she wasn't kicking me. She wasn't kicking me in the face either. Right. Right. <laughs> so she surviving. understood that I right. needed a little bit of a uh, couple of seconds. Yeah. Um, after about six months, I, I started screwing around with some some blogs online, some just my personal writing. Um, it was really bad. Like mm-hmm. it was really bad. The blogs are you writing? I was writing a political blog. I didn't understand why people didn't want to re- read a thirty thousand word multiple page entry about <laughs> why Republicans in various states sucked. I didn't understand why that wasn't awesome for people. <laughs> Long form journalism yeah. before it became popular. I love D- it. Yeah. Didn't, didn't quite get that. Right. But I was enjoying the I was enjoying the effort. You know, sure. I was enjoying the eight people who would read and all sure. which the I discourse. Knew. And, yeah. You know, like you know, you have like ten friends and you have eight readers, you're like, dude, I which two of you aren't even gonna click? <laughs> so that was fun. <laughs> um so that and was that. After a while, I was like, you know what? I, I do. After about six months, I was like, I think that I could enjoy doing this, and that's all I was looking for. Yep. Just something that I would enjoy doing. So you know, being the double Harvard grad, I was like, well, I'm going to send a resume to the New York Times and the Washington Post, and really going to see what the work happens because you know that that went nowhere. So that's another like three or four months of just like wow, sending out resumes. Right. Turns out this thing isn't worth as much as I thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> I sold the bill of goods. Jesus. <laughs> So eventually I'm like, no, I re- but I, I keep writing these really bad blog entries. And I'm like, okay, obviously what's happening to me, and this is, this is useful for your podcast. Obviously what was happening to me was that once you're a lawyer, you learn to write in a certain way. Correct. You learn to kind of process information in a certain way. And that's not good writing for the public. Yes. It's not, it's not a storytelling form of writing. It's very logical, a very kind of clear, but not engaging, gripping, interesting form of writing. Right. And I was too steeped in writing kind of like a lawyer and I didn't have any of the skills to write like a human yeah <laughs> um, yes. so kind of once I figured that out then I basically started and I was lucky that I lived in New York I sent my resume to pretty much any publishing company in the city saying basically look I've got two Harvard degrees and I'm only work for free somebody's gotta be able to use that <laughs> guys are like, who is this guy? You know, like, what is going on? Yeah. So I got a couple interviews and finally I found a guy whose name is Jerry Portwood at the New York Press and he was like, you know, I, I'm not going to offer you any money. Um, Sold. <laughs> you got yourself a deal. You might have to get some coffee. Right. Not sure about <laughs> that. possible. Right. Uh, we do have a Carrick, so maybe that'll get you out of it. Um, but in six months, I will teach you everything you could have learned going to journalism school. And that was really big for me. Like having already gotten one degree that I didn't want to use. I wasn't about to sign up to get another degree that I want to. I want to actually get out and have some experience. This guy was offering it to me. I took the job. Six months. I was, you know, he put me on kind of their staff. I got a little bit of money, you know. I, but I, but I really did in six months kind of learn a bunch of the 
I don't want to call them tricks, but a bunch of the things that they teach people in journalism school, not just about kind of like reporting, but just in terms of style, in terms of editing style. And I'm a terrible editor, but in, so I don't mean like grammatically, but I mean, you know, in terms of storytelling style, all that kind of stuff. And I was there. The, the New York Press was, unfortunately, at that point kind of on the, on the downswing. I mean, it used to be real, a real competitor to the Village Voice, and it wasn't by the time I got there. Um, and they didn't really have a strong online component, and I, I obviously I, you knew that online was where one had to be. I had read Above the Law, which started really the year that I quit. Um, I had been reading Above the Law just to kind of keep up on how much money I was not making. <laughs> um, um, every year there are bonus reports, and I look at the bonus for my firm and my year, and just think about you know the things that I could be doing with forty five thousand because yeah, this is two thousand six, two thousand seven. Yeah. Everything's great. And my, I think my first bonus that I missed was something like forty six thousand dollars. I mean, I think I know exactly it was forty six thousand about three hundred and seventy dollars. It's a lot of money. So um, David Latt, who's the founder of Above the Law, um, got. We it was Bob Law is owned by Breaking Media, which owns Deal Breaker, Fashionista, a couple other things. So David Law was getting kind of bumped up in that company, and Bob Law was getting bigger. He didn't want to run it day to day. They had a contest for the next editor above the law, and I put my resume in to get into the contest. And you won. And I won the contest. And here you are. And here I am. Wow. So really, when the commenters are mean to me, I try to remind people the commenters picked me. I I because the contest was. You write your posts, and then every week they vote two of you off. And I, I want to get to the comments. So, 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 why don't you explain for for the the two people in the basements that do not know what above the law is? What give it, give a short description of what it is and what what it's sort of intended to do. Above the law is a legal news, gossip, and entertainment da, site da, da, geared da, at da, lawyers, non-lawyers, <laughs> lawsuits, and judges. <laughs> Um, it's it's an entertainment. We do entertaining legal news. We try to talk about things that lawyers themselves are would talk about if there were still a water cooler. Right. Um, we try to talk about things that law students would talk about amongst themselves if there were still a water cooler. And we try to talk about it in an entertaining way. If we can break some news, if we can do some kind of industry trend pieces, that's all great. But you know, when I wake up in the morning and I'm looking at a blank page. The thing that I'm thinking about most is I have to make somebody else not do their job for five minutes. It's fantastic. That's that's my job. That's a fantastic description. <laughs> that's actually a fantastic description. And you start you start there when 2008. When so I started. Start, so the the blog starts in 2006. I start in 2008. 2008. So in 2008, how big is above the law? I mean, I know we don't like to talk about our traffic numbers. Right, right. So you don't have to talk about traffic. Yeah, but, but is, it was, it, is it a known? Yeah, it's. It, I, I, I like to say that like when. It, Right around when I started, Above the Law was like a cult thing, right. and we were David Koresh. Right? <laughs> like it had a, 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 a very analogy. dedicated cult following. So like within a Ready very kill themselves, you know, very small community. They read every post that we did. They hung on every word. Hung is not the right word. Right. Bitched about every word, every word that, that, that we wrote. Like it was a very, but it was a small group. Now we're more like the Catholic Church where David and I are just bishops. Like, it's much more diffuse. It's in lots of different countries or not, you know, it's lots of different fields and whatever. We have a much more kind of expansive look on the news, on the legal world. Um, and David and I have, you know, little corners of stuff that we do. So I think it's important, and I always sort of, I've asked other people this. So in 2008, you know, when you're there, when David's there, I don't want to... cash maker, let's on. Right, fine, let's <laughs> um, I, I want to talk about sort of a tipping point if there is one 
Did you? Oh, yeah. Is there? So, at what stage do you guys go? Shit! Yeah, I know it's a cult at that point, but at what stage do you guys guys go? Wow! This just got completely out of hand. I never expected it to, to hit this level. Now it's here. Oh my god! Is that? Is there a point like that? When did that happen? I want to say there was one. Day, I want to say there was one day. I'd say there were two kind of flashpoints for me. Um, and David brought, will probably have a very different. Having having started it, David probably has a different view of it. Right. Um, from my view, two things happen. One, breaking media for a long time. You know, we we've got investors, but they're you know they're guys we know. They're 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 friends. Yeah. You know, and at some point, we went from the two investors that we knew and our publisher that we knew, and we don't really have a bo- to we suddenly have a CEO. We have two CEO. Like it was you know the day when you walk in and there's like a corporate guy talking about how much money the operation can make. And whether how we're gonna get a ROI right. and how we're gonna monetize this, that day was like, huh? So yeah. yeah so what is this? So <laughs> I'm gonna go back and talk about how this Laudine looks like a poopy face. Is that is that so <laughs> cool? We can monetize the crap out of that. We can monetize it. Right, like th- that was a day. Right. Um, and then we we called it on the site. Uh, I think we ended up calling it like bloody Valentine's Day or something. There was a wonderful. There, there was on, on Valentine's Day week. There was a week where about a thousand people got laid off within the course of a week. And I remember getting off the train at Bleecker Street, which is right by our offices, and kind of walking up. And you know, my, my phone's been going. My like, I know that a lot of people are losing their job today. And as I'm walking in, I'm just like, crap. There are you know any number of people who are going to find out today that they are fired from me. That's crazy. You know, like, because we have the information and the firm is trying to hold it, but I know what's going to... And it was... It, I don't want to say that, like, that was the first day that I took my job seriously, but, like... That's the first day. But it's the first day where it's just, consequences. like... You, you wanted to make sure that you were... You felt... Yeah, this is the first day that I felt like I had a responsibility to my readers as opposed to just, hey, we're just shooting the shit and, right. you know, talking about whatever. Right. It was the first day I was like, wow, I've got I've got a job to do here in a kind of different way. So I think... And those two days are... Not for nothing. Those Tuesdays happen pretty close together. Like the 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 layoffs really are the things that I think took us out of the cult following thing and took us into a respected news organization. Back during the layoffs, there were still firms that wouldn't take my call, which is stupid when you think about it now. But like back in the day, they really thought, well, you know, I'm just some guy. Why do we have to return his call? Nobody cares what he writes about. Um, there was a lot of that in 2009. And after the layoffs, I can I get my calls answered. <laughs> so you got taken seriously, essentially, as a result, or right after this. Yeah. I mean, taken seriously in terms of these guys actually calling you back and right. saying, all right. As, as a journalistic entity, we got taken a lot more seriously after layoffs. Once they realized that, A, we weren't going to go away, and B, we weren't going to be wrong. And I think that's the other thing that a lot of firms, like, how do you guys get your information? Everybody kind of asks us, asks us that. And... Once they realized that we were getting legit information, I think that also changed the changed the tenor of how we were treated how within, they treat. the, within the community. I want to talk about the the, the people that comment. Can, <laughs> can can we dox them? Can we can we get their private? It, like, I, is there any way to pay? And I, I'm asking for for a friend. <laughs> is there any way to pay to to figure that? Because there's 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 why are they angry? <laughs> and what's wrong with them? And are they real? People. I mean, I know they're real yeah. people, but like, who who are they, and what's wrong? Strangely, within the company, yeah. I turn out to be of all people the biggest defender of the. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> Wonderful. Let's play it. Let's let's do it. 
I think what I've come to understand, and I know like, we're basically talking as if we're, we're kind of in a zoo, and it's like, the thing you have to understand about the snake is that <laughs> the snake is not immoral, he's amoral. <laughs> he, doesn't even, he doesn't grasp this, how this could be interpreted as wrong. But no, like, these are, they're real people, some of them are really quite racist, some of them are really quite sexist, but they are people that you work with, they are people that you interact with, they are people that you go to school with, they, they are just as much a part of this community as any kind of normal sounding people. They are emboldened by anonymity, right? which makes most people feel much more free, that's not necessarily bad, it's bad if, if you're a bad person and you're going to use it badly, but like that anonymity makes people feel more free is not necessarily a bad thing. The marketplace of ideas just with face masks. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, they don't like their jobs any better than I did. Right. I was able to get out. They weren't. You know, right. I have a I have a wife and I have a this and I have, you know, fallback. They don't have, they don't always have those. And so they're, a lot of times they are angry. And if, you know, I like to say like, look, if, if coming on to the above the law and calling me a fat walrus for five hours is going to keep you off of a building with a shotgun, I'll take the hit. You know? Really nice of you. I, I will take the hit for all. It's on, really, really nice of you to do. On that one, right? Yeah. But I, I think that you have to, I think you have to understand that like, for a lot of people, this, they're, they're, they feel like they're in a box. And above the law, in the comments, sometimes it allows them to get out of their box a little bit. Even if it's mean, and a lot of times it is, you know, it allows them to, to have cool. some feeling of expression, some feeling of creativity. We've got people who say very, very mean things about me, but do it in amazingly creative ways, you know? Like, <laughs> who, who have does? developed entire characters and backstories and histories and whatever. They're creative-ass people, right? And they don't have a place to do that in their day-to-day, -day, so so comes here. Why, and again, it's I don't mean that it's sort of rhetorical, but why don't you think these guys can get out? So obviously this, and it's, it's a bigger conversation I want to have with you about law in general and, and does it suck and why are there so many goddamn attorneys and why are the vast majority of them, I'm talking anecdotally, but why do they seem so unhappy? Why don't these guys get out? right, of the marketplace itself? Is it just because they get paid X number of dollars? Or is it just because they, you know, they're too scared to say, shit, I don't have a job right now and figure it out? Why do you think it is? Well, it's both of those things, right. I think. First of all, I mean, let's not gloss over the money. Yeah. Money's great. It's and good money. <laughs> it's good money. I'm not making as much now as I did when I was back at the law firm. And I would, most people would consider me successful. From a journalistic standpoint, I'm successful. I'm a successful internet writer. I'm not in shouting distance of what I used to make. Right. And that was six years ago. Right. So the money's real good. Right, the money's good. Yeah. And, and we can't gloss, gloss over that. We also can't gloss over, you, you called it scared. I just simply say it's risk averse. The law is what risk averse is the profession that risk-averse people go into. Risk-loving people go into business. Risk-averse people go into law. So you've, you've already self-selected for people who are pretty much making as much as they can and who are inherently risk-averse. How many of those people quit? How many of those people quit to start their own business or move to California or go join a, the circus? That's not those people. Right. So that's, I think, that... It adds to the feeling of feeling trapped. Even if it's trapped from inside, it adds to the feeling of feeling trapped. Is it that the risk, so I want to actually touch upon that. Is it, you think that they're risk averse or you just think that they don't know what the hell to do? Because I, if they're risk averse, it would make sense from a purely economical standpoint to not go into an industry that is saturated. And I'm not talking about the, the people that go to Harvard Law. Um, I'm talking about you know people that go to middle tier schools or even lower tier schools. Like if you're going to Cooley, I don't know if you're risk averse per se because you're going to go out into a market where there's a billion other people from Cooley 
um, that will literally pay you to hire them because the resume just has you know Chuck E. Cheese on, on it. Not that there's anything wrong with Chuck E. Cheese. Why not be a plumber, right? Because risk averse doesn't mean that you've made a smart risk assessment, right? Right. So I think that what happens with let's, for instance, Cooley, yeah, um, is that you have risk averse people who just haven't don't have the information and knowledge and kind of backstory to make an informed risk decision. But they're trying to make what looks to them like the safest decision, and not just to them. One of the things that I write, I try to write about a lot, and I should write about more, is that. A lot of this comes from people's parents too. Sure. Like it, it's very. It's. I have a friend um, who really wants to design video games, right? Like has a passion for it and likes it, and you know is good at it, and knows stuff about it. Um, but right now he's thinking of going to law school. I'm trying. It's every claw is scraping, just like whatever. But you know, he's like, well, what am I going to tell my mom that I'm going to sit in my her apartment, I'm right. sit in her basement? Coding video games, you know, independent yes. video games or whatever, because maybe one day Sony will buy it, or I can go to law school and do something with my life. That's a hard, it's a hard thing to tell your parents, you know, who your parents are like the least likely people to understand all the ins and outs of the legal job market and what's going on. You know, your par- if your parent is a non-lawyer, all they think is that, well, money. obviously lawyers are on TV, money. they make money, and right. it's a safe job. It's a profession. Which is, by the way, the antithesis of what, I mean, lawyers really, to, for the most part, I don't know if you agree with me on that, if, if I was someone's parent, I would literally tell them never. I mean, don't go to law school, no matter, I don't give a shit if you're a plumber, because you're going to get benefits, you're probably not going to get you know, fired in any way, and there's more than enough clock toilets for you in to the me, world. To me, the only people who should go to law school are the people who have a passion for yes. it, like the people who have a passion to make video games or act in movies or whatever. Like, you should have that kind of, if you've got that kind of driving passion for it, law school is great. <laughs> what percentage of people, because I, I would peg it at like 5% of the people that, um, you know, actually go to law school. What percent of the people that are in law school do you think actually have a passion for it? And I don't mean a passion like... You know, they, they, they have a passion for making six figures or they have a passion for, you know, following in someone's footsteps. Really give a shit and actually say, you know what? I'm going in there. I, I've always wanted to be a lawyer. I set up a, you know, a tri- mock courtroom in my basement because I'm a weirdo and I had no friends, right. right? And mom wouldn't let me play with anyone. What percentage of those people, I'm not talking about you, mom. What percentage of those people do you think actually have a passion yeah. that are in law school now? Low. Really low. Very low. Really goddamn low. I think that the other problem with that is is that there's so many there's so few people who have any idea what being a lawyer means. Yeah. You know, I've talked to I, I talk to students all the time. I talk to prospective students a lot of the time. I ask them, well, what do you think being a lawyer is? And you know, invariably you've got the people who just are just telling you what you saw on TV last night. Yep. Then you've got the slightly smarter people who are just like, well, I know that TV is wrong. So what I've done is absolutely nothing else, <laughs> right? I just know that TV is wrong. Well, great. What do you know? Do you know anything that's right? No, of course you know. No. So I say to them, you know, let's not. Court's free. Court is free. If you really want to be a trial lawyer, you think go to just get off your ass, just go there. Go to go to courthouse. Sit people. there. Yeah. Sit there for a day. They, but they don't. And then then tell me you want to be a lawyer. right because it's horrible. <laughs> it's absolutely horrific. And that's not to say that look, there's awesome attorneys out there. They love what they do. They know their their stuff and, and they're in there. But. You know, for the most part, it's a horrible, terrifying, horrible, inefficient process that you actually go into. And if most of the people were there and you sat them there and you said, hey, you're going to do this every day for someone that hates their life. And also, you're probably going to make $50,000 for several, several years. Maybe have health benefits, maybe not. And you may laterally move to another position, another firm and make (laughs) $55,000. Do you want to do this? Plus, I'm going to need to strap you with $150,000 of the student loan debt. 
you know, they would mace you, as they do me, right. and run for their lives. Although they would think, well, that's only if you're unsuccessful. Right, that's not me. I'm, right. I'm the pony. Every, everybody's, I'm the pony. Everybody's a special snowflake. I'm the special Every, snowflake. Everybody's going to rise above and yeah. have the thing right. And, and that's a problem. But, by the same token, I do think that there are people... So, while there's a very, very low percentage of people in law school that would actually choose to be lawyers if they knew what they were talking about. I think it's a much higher percentage of people who are actually in the profession who actually like their jobs. Mm-hmm. Like the it's, I would say like that half lawyer, half the lawyers don't like their jobs, and that sounds high because it is higher than I think firemen or whatever, right? But that still means that half the lawyers probably do, and like half the lawyers you know probably wouldn't change, and half the lawyers probably really have found a place and a role and a, and a place for them in society. That's that's one of the nice things about being a lawyer is that if you kind of hit it right. You're not. It's not just a job. It's a community membership. You're. You're. You're a. I don't want to say pillar of your community, no, but, but you like look, you, yeah. you. You. have some. You have something to offer. You have a standing within your yeah. own. You know, community. Whether that's community of your friends, your community of your family. Um, and I do think that for the lawyers who kind of find that thing, that's it's. So you know, I try not to. Have, I don't think that the law. I think the law can be a rewarding career. I just don't think it's for everybody. And there are way too many people with social science degrees, with humanities degrees, who thinks who, who, who don't think through that process. Right. They just have to keep going. Um, just to touch upon real quick the because I actually want to pick your brain about this. So when the job market essentially just crashed, right? Great. When everyone's getting laid off and you saw these lawsuits come out um, against the law schools. Mm-hmm. And the lawsuits essentially said um, you know, I you was, lied to me. Right, you lied to me. I was tricked. I read your glossy brochure, and that's why I plunked down one hundred fifty thousand dollars. I don't have a job. Fraud, fraud, fraud. I came out against it like crazy. I thought it was horrible of them to even sue. Um, I think there's you know a lot of personal responsibility that goes into you know making a decision where one hundred fifty thousand dollars or two hundred thousand dollars is on the line, and you can't rely on a brochure. Um, what do you make of it? Would you, you know, what do you make of the law school's reaction to it? Is there, is there a kernel of truth to it? I was, I was a big fan of lawsuits. I didn't think they would ever win, and they didn't. Um, but I was a big fan of them for, for because what you just said, you were just going personal responsibility, correct? And you can't just make a decision off your brochure, correct? Right. But when you have, when you don't have knowledge, when you don't come from a community or a family or a situation where people are kind of telling you how to think about things helping you think through things. What you're going to get is a brochure, and then you're going to get somebody who looks like they should know what they're talking about, who's going to tell you, not only is everything in the brochure awesome, then they're going to tell you a whole different spate of, if not outright lies, then certain mistruths. And you are take, and they're preying on people, or the people that's going to be most effective to on, are the people who are like least able to defend themselves, right? So, if a Harvard student, if a Yale student, if a, if a UVA student, just to be like, oh, you said that, come on. Come on, guy. Right. You know, 175 on the LSAT. You, let, let, let's, let's, let's put that logical reasoning to the test, sir. But for some of these other schools, with your 140 on the LSAT, with your kind of clear, I've taken a test that shows maybe I'm not the best at thinking through right. complicated logical issues, where you kind of, you know, I, I'm, my, nobody in my family were, were, were lawyers, but both of my parents, both of, first of all, both of my parents were there, which helps. Right. Both of my parents were, you know, college educated and, and above. I had friends and family, you know, I had a lot of people who could give me interesting information about my choices, and I still made the wrong right. one. A lot of people don't have that. 
a lot of people come from nothing, come from really difficult situations. They're trying to find a way out of their situation. They've taken a test. They think that... And then some fast-talking, slick, law school dean guy comes with their glossy brochure, tells them, just pay me, a, and you don't even have to pay $150,000. Just sign this form, and the federal government will give you $150,000 that you can give to me. At that point, at somewhere along that point, I think fraud occurs. Is it a point that we can point to and get legal kind of justice for it? I wasn't, I wasn't sure those lawsuits were ever going to work. But I do think that, that there was, I do think that educational institutions have been taking, has been systematically taking advantage of college graduates who are least able to defend themselves. Yes, and so let me let me throw a counter out there, if you will. And I agree with you in, in terms of the, the Harvard example, but you know, one of the plaintiffs that was in these lawsuits was uh, someone, I believe, from Brooklyn Law School. Mm-hmm. It's okay. I mean, it's a, it's a good law school per se, but I don't think, I can't equate I agree with what you're saying to an extent, but the way it's framed is almost like those, you know, payday lenders yes. where you have no choice. You know, you walk into this law school and you're like, come this way and look at all this money behind this chest. All you need to do is sign up right here. <laughs> I mean, I think that there's there's probably a small distinction between someone that doesn't have an option. But if you're college educated, right, and you, you put the work in for four years, I mean, these are people, yes, that are trying to escape something or trying to better themselves, shall we say. But I don't know that... The, I don't want to say the world owed them something, but if they, you know, you're making a hundred fifty thousand dollar decision. You're college educated, right? You're not just like someone that's like I like colors and walking in and eating your own hands. They had the opportunity to assess. Like what I did was I asked people in the neighborhood. I was like, do you, you know, how do you do? How well do you do? Is this something you enjoy? Whatever. And everyone said no. And I said, you know what? I'm going anyway. I don't care because uh, I wanted to do it and I thought there was a niche um, for it. And I went. Having said that, though. You know, I have a different story in that I started my own practice right out of the gate. Do you think... Can I just go back to your yeah. point, though? Because I think one of the ways that I like to look at it is we have lemon laws. Yeah. Right? We have laws that say you can... I don't care if you can find some goober to buy it. If the car is so bad that it's going to break five minutes off the lot, we're not going to let you sell that. That's different from saying this. This isn't a great. You can sell a used car to a goober that's not the best car. Sure. That's going to have some problems down the road, sure. and that's not going to be a lemon. Like there's a very. We have a specific kind of definition of what a lemon is. We've thought through that. We've thought through from a consumer protection angle exactly where we want personal responsibility to attach, and where even if one could, I've never bought a lemon. But I'm still protected by lemon laws. I, I have. I bought a Fiat. It was horrendous. I, I'm, I'm not kidding. It burned down within two weeks. It was horrible. And the New York lemon law is horrendous, by the way. It's not the best. Don't get a Fiat. Either. But it's still there. Yeah. And I don't see why we can't have the same thing for law schools. If you buy a toaster and it blows up in your face, there should be something that, to say that you can't sell that toaster. I mean, if you buy a toaster and you go swimming with it, okay. That's <laughs> but that, but I equate this, and I agree with that, but at the end of the day, the one missing component is that it's not just, you know, you know go to law school equals money, right? There's a missing component that's there that's jobs, and I agree. The market was absolutely horrible, and the law school statistics were absolutely insane to a certain extent. I wonder how many, and it, whenever you, you talk about personal responsibility and you say, I wonder how, how hard these guys hustle, the, the, the reaction is always like, you don't know me, I was out right. every single day. No, you probably weren't. I don't know how many of them hustled. Um, that's not to say that they didn't hustle to get a job, but all, all I know is that, for instance, when we when we listed a paralegal position years ago, 
because um, that's all I could afford to pay was for a paralegal, a part-time paralegal. You know, we got attorneys left and right, and every single resume was completely identical. Um, not once did I have someone approach me or say, you know, can I talk to you for a minute? Do you have any advice? Can you put me in touch with this person and that person? I didn't see that many people, and that's that's. I don't want to say that's all I did because it, I just I was crazy and I did whatever the hell I had to do to to pay the rent, but. Did they hustle afterwards? Like, did they think just because they went to law school they were entitled to a job? But you're, but you're, you're the, you're the star. You're, you're the, you're the unicorn that so many people are gonna, gonna break themselves trying to follow. Right? right. It's, it's. I, as many of my readers know, I'm, I'm quite liberal. Right. And I, one of the things I hate the Republicans Me too, say by the way. is, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Great. Right. Anybody, yes. If you look at any one individual person, any one individual yep. person can overcome any number of things. You know, not me. If you had said, if I was born in the ghetto, I would be in the ghetto. I would not have found my way out the ghetto. I sure. needed, I had every opportunity. My parents gave me every opportunity available, and I squandered it the way that I have. Me too. But like, <laughs> I needed those opportunities just to get this far. Right. To get that right? far. Not everybody should be tasked with having to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, or at least not everybody should be cast aside if they can't manage to do it. So when you talk about did they hustle, did they work hard enough, um, did they do everything possible that they could have to, to improve their situation, I don't know. We don't know. My question is, should they have had to? Should for a hundred, what should one hundred and fifty thousand dollars buy you? One hundred fifty dollars. Are, are we are we honestly saying that one hundred fifty thousand dollars? only buys you the opportunity to hustle your ass off and maybe get a job, okay, then let's put that in the brochure. Then, <laughs> let, then, then, then let's just say, by the way, this $150,000, like, let's throw out all of these, I can say, bullshit statistics, yeah, and just say it's a $150,000 lottery ticket. What would the solution have been? I mean, I thought one of the things that was good about the lawsuit is that they were focusing very, very, I thought, laser-like just on the transparency angle. Just tell people the truth. Don't tell people that you have a 95% employment rate when 50% of those people are employed by the school. Don't tell people that you have a 83% employment rate nine months after graduation when you that employment rate craters to 20%. A, two years after graduation, because so many of those jobs were short-term jobs, you know, like let's let's just tell people the truth. You can't even begin to, to use my toaster analogy. At the very least, we have to tell people that they're buying a toaster. Then, if they want to go play in the water with it, okay, maybe we can talk about personal responsibility. But at the very least, you have to tell them what they're buying. And we're not doing. Law schools are doing a still to this day. Law schools are doing a very bad job of doing that. Now, luckily, we have the internet, and luckily, we live in a world where now. You know, some some targeted Google searches will let you know a lot more about the schools. But that's now. That wasn't that wasn't true even when I started blogging in just U.S. News. They just had U.S. News to rate them, and that, and that was it. Right. That's and that, again, that's not ancient history. That's two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Right. So that's that's where I think those lawsuits really had some value, Folk, even though they weren't going to win. Focusing people on what well, what, if if there's a fraud here, the the fraud is actually in that brochure. Let's make that brochure tell the truth. Are the law schools feeling it now? So there's, there's, oh yeah, yeah. they're feeling it hard, right? So I mean, it's it, it, Cooley is having a hard time. I think they shut down their what was it, their main campus? I think yeah, recently, yeah. Um, and there's a lot of other law schools that essentially had serious issues uh, going forward. The applications are down tremendously, right, from where they were before. So what's the solution? I mean, is it is it? Are there a lot of them that are just going to die out, and there's going to be a few remaining, and that's it? I don't think that a lot of them are going to die out. I do think some will close. Hopefully, 
five or six. <laughs> right. But I do. But I, I think we'll still get about two hundred accredited law schools. I think what's going to happen, what needs to happen, is a two-tiered approach. And this is we talked about also about law firms. Um, everybody basically teaches law in the same kind of Yale model of highly theoretical, primarily focused on training the next generation, not of practitioners, but of judges, right. of professors, of professors of people that you're not going to be when you go to a school ranked 195. Right. Right? We need a two-tier system where they're always going to, you know, Yale can do what's... Because, you know, the Yale system's working fine for Yale. Yale's it's Yale. working fine for Harvard. It's yeah. working fine for Berkeley. Yeah. There's going to be... There needs to be a couple of schools at the top that still do that, still train our Supreme Court justices of the future. And then the other, the great middle, needs to be schools that are training people to be practitioners... A shorter education, probably two years as opposed I was to three. Ask, two years versus three. A cheaper education, and uh, education that's more designed on kind of putting you in. To, look, you, what do you need to know after the first year of law school? Really, nothing. Like really, what do you need to know after that? Right, nothing. you get a year of that. That first year is still useful, right? That first year is like, oh, that's a tort. That's interesting. Right. Oh wow, that's a contract. Hmm. You get your year of that, then you get a year of kind of practical, clinical, whatever training. I, I've always been saying. It needs to be business training. You start. You have your own for, firm. Yep. How much of what you learned in law school in terms of, uh, you know, law and finance is helping versus yep. how much have you learned on your own just by running a business? Yeah. Right. You, so the second year of law school should be much more focused, not just on on the clinical like, here's how you represent a client. Here's how you go to traffic court. It also has to be here's how you set up an office. Here's how you set up a phone. <laughs> right. <laughs> here's how you hire a secretary. The actual real world. Like. Yep. That's year two, and then year three, you're, you're out, you're gone, you're, you're out, you're out in the market. You've gone through the thing. Let's say with fifty thousand dollars of debt, it's supposed to hundred fifty thousand dollars of debt, and you're ready to start your own business. Get a job if you can. That would be this. That would be the second tier of law school. We're not training you to be a Supreme Court justice. We're not training you to have a job on Wall Street and whatever. We're training you to go out and be a practitioner. To get there. Some law schools are going to have to admit that that's what they're doing. Nobody wants to, right? Because everybody wants to be able to say, and this goes back to those fake-ass brochures, everybody wants to be able to say, well, like, the average starting salary of our graduates is whatever the hell it is. And, you know, we have graduates that sit on the Texas bar of something. Like, they all want to say that because they think that that's what's going to drive people to apply to their school. At some point, as people keep not applying to schools, somebody is going to have the balls to say, like, look, we're only doing this. We're not even trying to do that. Come here if you want to be a practitioner and see if that works. Do you think most people know that they want to be practitioners or do you think most people are under this weird belief that, you know what I mean, again, being the, the unicorn? Because I, I agree with every single thing you said. I think, you know, when I, when I went to New York Law, um, I made the law review. I have no idea how. And um, through the help of my girlfriend at the time, and I met with uh, teen. It was she's moved on to bigger and better things, bigger and better things. Um, but I met with uh, then Dean Matazar, who, who yeah. got ripped. I, I love the guy personally. I thought it was great. I think he was he was he, he, he was a thinker. He he was a thinker. He was like, the, but I also think he was like the James Bond of deans. He was this cool guy. He walked in the room, he didn't give a shit, you know, about anything. I spread a rumor that he was installing a pool with his face in the tile itself. We laughed it off. It was cool. And he gave me some time, you know, and I talked to him about reforming legal education. This was years and years and years ago. He said the same thing. He said, it's got to go from three to two years. Um, it's got to be much cheaper. It has to have practical applications to, to all this stuff. Um, I just wonder how many people, 
And it, it has to happen. I mean, it's going to happen. There's, there's no two ways about it because the market just sucks beyond belief. I wonder how many people will adopt that. In other words, it quickly enough to be able to. It'll take a second because, because not just because of the schools being slow to adjust, but because mm-hmm. of the students, right? I mean, the law is something that you. Law is an aspirational thing, fundamentally, right? Yeah. It's a, it's a, the thing that, if if you were a trust fund baby, if you were rich, if you were born into money, you don't become a lawyer. No. Are you kidding me? That's a. It's a. It's a. You do drugs. <laughs> you do drugs. Yes, I agree. A lawyer is a workaday profession. Um, it's for people who kind of start off, whose families kind of start off lower class, yep. and they want to move into the middle class. Yeah. It starts off with people whose families are middle class, and they want to move into the upper middle class. It's an upwardly mobile profession. That's at least what it's sold as. And so when you take people who have this aspirational idea in their head and say, by the way, your aspirations are totally going to top out here. You're, right. you're not going to... <laughs> I've I've looked. I can just tell looking at your scores right now. Like you're, this, you're maybe that's and that's a reach. If you, if you, if you work hard, you're here. Um, people are. It's going to take a second for people to accept that. And it's going to. I would say you know just to touch upon this real quick. The the professors themselves. So you brought up an awesome point. So I would speak at New York Law School after I graduated. A couple of faculty members actually asked me to come back and discuss how I started a practice because it was insane. And students loved it, right? The practical aspects of it. But there was a lot of pushback afterwards where, you know, they, the professors were, again, teaching in a Socratic way where we would talk about cases like Erie that, you know, you couldn't possibly discuss now if you wanted to, right? Um, And you would have these courses that had nothing to do with real world experience. is there legal academia does not like this? That's I was just going to throw it up to you that it, is is it just this ingrained thing of no we know better because we are you know the holders of this knowledge and we, we must teach it the same way we have for a hundred years even though life has changed tremendously and you're likely going to be in traffic court and it's also the only yes, yes. because it's also the only way that how they learn it's yeah. the only way that they know how to teach it's the only way that they have value they went if you look you t- take whatever middling law school you want their professors come from all the top schools. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's it's what you do. Right. So you go to, uh, let's take one out, you know, Berkeley, and you do your thing, and now you want to get to academia, and Case Western is going to give you a tenure-track professorship. You're like, oh, okay, I'll do that. Done. You go and you do your legal scholarship. I'm not saying there's no value in legal scholarship, just like I'm not saying, wouldn't say there's no value in a philosophy PhD. It's just, it's just a certain kind of value. Right. One that maybe isn't as easily economically <laughs> Correct. It's a very specific value to a very specific set <laughs> of people. people. Right. Um, and so, you know, the legal academia is going to push back on, on it. The thing that I believe, the only thing that, that kind of breaks the back of legal academia, gets students to accept their likely ceiling as opposed to their aspirational season, the only soluble in this mix is money. Once they once the current system, if the current system runs out of money, these professors will have to make some changes and accept things that they didn't think they were willing to accept. If you tell a student, yes, you can go to whatever middling law school is offering you this aspirational dream for $47,000 a year, or you can come here for $7,000 a year, then, you know, well, you know, I'm going to... I'm going to go. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Phil. Sorry, Mom. Like... That that's money is the only thing that, and again, as a liberal, it's hard for me to say, but the market is kind of the only thing that can change the situation. And really, the hardest thing for me to say as a liberal, because look, I wouldn't have been able to go to Harvard if not for federally backed government loans. Nobody, my family couldn't afford that education for me, and 
in fairness, you know, a lot of people say, well, I could have gotten a loan at a bank. Dude, I'm that black man. I'm no, the bank wasn't giving me a loan. Are you crazy? I was going to get a loan from Citibank? No. It's the same I, with me being Jewish. It's very like, difficult for me. I, <laughs> it's very difficult. People are like, no way. I needed the government to yeah. come in <laughs> and give me a loan for me to be able to go to the schools that I want to go to. So I, I believe that student loans and, and federally backed student loans are very important. But I've come to the belief that they have to be severely cut back, at least for higher education. College, fine. We should, we should as a society, as taxpayers, be willing to pay as much as we can to have people become edu- college educated. It helps all of us. Law school? Not so much. Not so much. And you got us. I, I do think that eventually the government is going to have to pull back on the teeth, pull, stop the spigot of free money going into law schools in order to really change the economic landscape for for a lot of these schools. And if you think about it, you know, if <laughs> one of, one of my favorite things to think about is imagine what would happen tomorrow to any school ranked outside of the top fifty if the federal government wasn't going to guarantee their loans. Not good. And what some of them would fail immediately, right. but the smarter ones would immediately change their business plan. Like tomorrow, they'd be like, "Oh, we've got to go go about this in a completely different way," and that different way would be better, I think, for most of the students there. So, tell me, just uh, tell me about the lawyers that come out. So you were talking about a two-tier system for law schools. Do you have a two-tier system for attorneys too? Is yes. that right? right I think, tell me about that. I, I think that the, the future of the, of the legal, as you look at, you know, leverage is becoming more and more of a problem. I think what's going to happen in these large firms is that you're going to have two tiers of associates. You're going to have one traditional partnership track associate. They're going to come in. They're going to come out from their federal clerkship, maybe even their Supreme Court clerkship. They're going to immediately start doing kind of very small but high-end work. They're going to be groomed to do business, to make rain, and to eventually become partners of the firm. Right. Then you're going to have a whole different class <laughs> of, of lawyers, people with law degrees, who are going to be who are going to be the document monkeys? Who are going to be the man hour people? Clients are going to demand this. You know, clients understand like they don't. It's too expensive for them to have fifteen Harvard graduates in a windowless office churning through. Do- it's that's too expensive for the clients, Idiotic. right? Yeah. So already firms are moving into you know outsourcing to India. People are moving to insourcing to smaller uh, states like. Uh, cities like Willing West, West Virginia. There's another firm that's doing something in Kentucky where they're just putting, you know, they call it contract attorneys now. Right. But I think eventually what we call contract attorneys will be the norm. Will be full time attorneys at these firms still getting paid crap. Right. And not being, you know, but enough. But enough to make a living off of. You know, $65,000 is not a lot, but it's enough that you can make a living off of in this country. Um, especially if you live in Williams, right, Virginia, in, or, right. or, 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 or Kentucky. New York's a little more difficult. Yeah. That's going to be one kind of class of attorney, and it's going to be fewer and fewer of these kind of traditional partnership track attorneys, but they'll still be there because the world needs more partners. And even the kind of work that people do will, I think, become increasingly different, where, you know, for the partnership track attorneys, firms are very bad right now at training their mid-level and senior associates to make rain. They, they don't do a good job of doing that. Horrendous. Yeah. <laughs> They're literally horrendous. And it's one of the reasons why, not all, but some of the kind of the middling AMLA 200 firms, like the, the less prestigious AMLA 200 firms, some of them are having their lunch eaten 
by not by mid-sized non-AMWAT 200 firms who are just much better at client services. So I think that for even for the big firms, they have to get smaller and more nimble and, and more able to actually produce client services. And that's going to require different kind of training of their lawyers. Lawyers, I think at all levels, need to be trained more, more like businessmen. And I think that, for again, for those kind of partnership track attorneys, their life cycle through their like, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten years to make partner will include more of that and less 3,000, 3,500 hour billable right. years. Right. And the document monkeys and wheeling will have will be picking up the slack for that, which in a lot of ways I think will be will will suck for the people in wheeling. But on the other hand, it's also going to be kind of a, it's going to be a stable job. Yes, that works. Which is something that people like. Solo and small firms. What happens to them? I mean, it's gonna see for that. It's gonna be interesting because you. We I think at every point we think that we are kind of we've understood and 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 downloaded and feel comfortable with what the internet is and where it's going. And really, I think we're still completely at the beginning of this. What do you mean? You know, like, I, I'm saying that I have no idea what the next app, the next function, the next whatever is going to be, but I think that it all, all we've seen so far from the internet is that it allows smaller people to punch above their weight. It allows fewer people, smaller people, more decentralized people to do more and more and more and more. And I don't think there's any great template for what that's going to mean five years down the road, say nothing of 15 years down the road. So I think small, small and solos, they're just going to have more opportunities kind of to do more work. Who says that that office in West Virginia is only for, you know, the big firm? Maybe it's kind of, maybe you end up with a timeshare kind of situation where like, you know, the same way, uh, I don't know. So if you look at uh, telescopes around the world, right? Like there's like three astronomers in the telescope, right? But scientists from all over the world says like, oh, from eight to nine o'clock, you're going to work on this. And from 10 to 12, you're going to work on that. Why can't that be what happens in Kentucky, where you are able to call up and says like, I need half an, you know, I'm willing to pay whatever it is for half an hour of fifty people, <laughs> right? You know, churning this thing that I need to do for a really big client. Maybe that's something. And I think that the the internet allows the digital age allows us to do more and more of that. I think there may be so. So the other thing is sort of contrarian, and I want your your take on this is that you know when when I came out. And started practicing law. The, the whole thing prior to prior to me was general practice. People were running general practices, and honestly, in Sheepshead Bay, they were doing general practices where, where I started. Um, and everyone said you have to be specific. You have to have a niche. You have to be able to do well. There's and there's pros and cons to that. And I think there may be a return to a certain extent to a general practice based solution going farther down the line in terms of small and small firms. I think there's going to be informal sort of partnerships that are kind of like the, the way they're doing it now, but literally more informal. So if someone needs, you know, if they have a small business, right, and they want to set something up, it used to be a situation where if you're doing a niche practice, you would call a real estate attorney to do a commercial lease, then you would have to speak to an employment lawyer to do your employment agreements. Uh, you, you, if you're going public, it's a different thing. Um, you know, for liquor license, there's a liquor license lawyer, but if everyone's under the same roof and you call it solutions or something along those lines and you're able to come in as a client because there's lifetime value to a client like mm-hmm. that, right? That may be somewhere where solo practice is going. Yeah, but I would what I would worry about that if that's for, for that future is that the roof that they're going to be under is called Walmart. Correct. Right? Like, right. So that's the other thing I was going to ask you about. Do you see that happening? Do yeah, you see I think, Walmart coming in? I think there's more and not more. Not Walmart, but yeah. I, why not? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, I think more and more because one of the things we haven't talked about 
right? There is such a true need for lawyers in this country. I mean, as much as we like to joke, like, there are too many. No, there are too many lawyers working on Wall Street. Yeah. Too many lawyers, you know, uh, GE does not need any more lawyers. Right. But there is a huge kind of unwashed mass of people who desperately need small-time legal help on their issues, and they can't afford anybody to do it. Sure. The people coming out of law school right now, they can't afford to do it because even though they're broke, even though they don't have any clients, they still have bills to pay, and they can't afford to work for five bucks an hour. It's an idiotic system. Yeah? Yeah. But Walmart can, LegalZoom can, Kmart can, and I think it's going to be more those people who currently aren't served at all are going to find, I think, in the future, their legal solutions at kind of large big box store where they're that and 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 for for small and solos their their thing is going to have to be setting up referrals with you know so when they actually need to talk to our person walmart calls you and you the solo attorney goes in and helps that person and then walmart helps it however but i think it should be that way i mean to a certain extent i i know it's almost ridiculous for me to say that there's a lot of shit that we do right there's a lot of stuff so let me let me cut a segment out of this Criminal defense attorneys, there should never be a Walmart of that. <laughs> you know, when your ass is about to go to jail, right, you want someone who's amazing, right? right. Huge commercial litigation case. You don't need a Walmart attorney to, to deal with that if there's millions of dollars on the line or if it's something something very, very serious. For things like real estate, which, which I'm involved in, for things like incorporations for small businesses, I think there's... I think we charge way too much. I mean, I think it's it's a situation, yes, where there's going to be complexities in certain deals, and we're going to be able to see that, and I think that the clients may be able to see that, but I think all too often, you know, you had this situation where someone would come in and, and they would say, well, I want to start a business, right? I want to form an LLC, and some attorney would charge them $3,000, and they would do an operating agreement that they have a sample of and change four things, and it would literally take, I don't know, 15 to 20 minutes. That shouldn't be $3,000. That should be $300 maybe at that or $400. I think Walmart's going to eat the lunch of people like that. I think business practices are going to have to change when it comes to that. But, but, yes. and... Uh, <laughs> I love this. <laughs> the problem with that is that right now the people who are working, willing to work for $300 are terrible attorneys. Like, are terrible, yes. terrible attorneys. Yes. And I think you really run the danger. The reason why my nose is so upturned at the idea of Walmart law is because the I, I I fear that the people who would be willing to work for that as attorneys would be so bad that their legal representation would be bordering on malpractice. Maybe. As you know, I recently bought a house and yeah. I had a terrible real estate attorney. You didn't a, call. A, I did not call you, you didn't call. because my mine was free. Yeah. You cost money. And so it goes exactly to the point of like right. I, I've got again. I've how many times I said on this goddamn po- podcast. Mm-hmm. Not only I have the two, my wife does too. We've got four goddamn Harvard degrees up in this bitch. <laughs> we do not need to hire a real estate attorney to buy Why? a stupid fucking house. Why would you? Oh my god! Right? <laughs> it was absolutely terrible. Terrible. And the our attorney, you know, I didn't meet him. I'm literally. I'm, I, 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 I. It was. It was one of the situations where like I would try to call to set up appointments and be like, oh yeah, I'll see you. And they just wouldn't show up. Just wouldn't show up to where the hell we were supposed to meet. At various points, I was like, oh, my God, if we weren't, like, I think we're going to close in a week. And so I'm not going to fire him because if I fire him, then it's going to take us two weeks to close. Right. And then it would take us two weeks to close anyway. It's like, oh, wow, what I should have fired him a week ago. Like, what He was a ter- and And I was in a unique position to defend myself and know what kind of terrible service I was getting. So when the, the, the seller's attorney, who was, who was competent, 
<laughs> was trying to screw us. Our attorney will let it happen. Luckily, we were able to like, well, see, no, sir. Well, actually, this is what we had agreed on, and you're gonna. And I'm uniquely qualified to, to, to protect my. I was uniquely qualified to protect my own rights. Most people who will be looking for Walmart attorneys are going to be uniquely unqualified to defend themselves from terrible attorneys. Maybe. Maybe. But I think there's, if you look at the marketplace, and I, I take your point, I agree with it, but two things. If you have enough people that are saying, shit, I'm not going to pay $3,000 for this when I have a $300 option, you're going to have the people that charge $3,000 say, uh, no one's coming in, so I really have to drop this price significantly because there's only a certain number of people that they can actually get to sign up. They have overhead, et cetera, to do that. And two, you'd be surprised at the number of people. So my some of my clients that argue with me about prices are not the people that buy $200,000 co-ops. They're happy to pay the fee. It's the people that buy $1.9, $2 million condos because they'll Google and say, well, this attorney's doing it for $600. What makes you so special? And then I would hang up on them, cry, cry, <laughs> saying, why did I, why did I do this? I could have acted. And uh, then call them back and say, all right, I'm gonna, no, I didn't do that. But there's plenty of people that will say, well, why should it cost this much? And, and yes, to your point, you're going to have a lot of malpractice. You're going to have a lot of issues that's there. But why can't there be some middle solution, right, where you have a Walmart or something along those lines? And again, I am cutting out criminal, I mean, right. serious sort of things. Um, where someone says, so like this bespoke thing. So there's, so for clothing, you have off the rack, which is the cheapest solution, and it may fit you, it may not, but you know what? Shit, it's cheap and it's fine and it'll fit. And you have custom, right? And custom costs God knows how much money and it's to your measurements and it's everything else. But the biggest thing in menswear to a certain extent is made to measure, which is what? It's really off the rack and they make certain adjustments, right? So why not have a Walmart lawyer or Walmart whatever to get your business set up at $300 or $350 also, we've contracted with this attorney who we've vetted in some way, one way or another, that will do an additional two hours for you if you need to in terms of a consultation, tailoring the document for, I don't know, an additional 400 bucks or 500 bucks, right? It gives the attorney a steady stream of business. And I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying I think this is kind of where we're headed because people keep looking at, if you look at investments, right? Charles Schwab just came out with uh, RoboAdvisor. Right. And essentially what that is, it's, it's for millennials. And essentially what it is is, hey, because you're paying this 1% asset management fee with your broker that you never speak to and you know the fees are the most important things, we're gonna allow you to place your, I don't know, $400,000, $300,000, $5,000, whatever it is, in the hands of a robot or some algorithm that's gonna do this for you for no fees whatsoever. If these people are entrusting half a million dollars, and I guarantee you there's a lot of these, a lot of these people have half a million, maybe more that they're gonna give to, to these people, specifically in a tech scene where they don't find value in a lot of these things. I don't think it's such a crazy leap to suggest that these people are gonna be sophisticated people that say, well, look, I get the value in doing a series A funding, right, uh, for, for a company, or if it's going public, I, I need someone that knows what they're doing. I don't understand why it'd be important for me to really do this on, let's say, I don't know, a simple will or something along those lines that may or may not, you know, what, what are lawyers really going to do with something like this? I think there has to be a happy medium going forward. Can I ask you one question? Of course you can. You're on the podcast. Who's, uh, who's going to carry the malpractice insurance? It's a great question. Because if it's Walmart, now we're talking. Right. Right. Now if, we're talking. If Walmart's putting its Walmart money behind the quality and, and, and whateverness of the lawyers that it contracts with, that's one thing. If Walmart's just saying, actually we're just we're just a clearinghouse. We're just we're just a phone operator that's gonna connect you to 
Joe Schmo, right. who's his own. Then I think then I think it's still bad. Then I think that all Walmart does is send people to the worst attorneys they can find. Possibly, but what if what if there's another? Okay, so let's say that's the market, right? But let's say another one comes in, Target comes in and says, "Hey, Walmart's attorney are pretty crappy, but we've vetted our attorneys, and if they're if the price point makes sense for them, because really, really crappy. That's the problem, and this is and this goes into to, yeah. to Avo and and lots of other services. One of the things that you learn, clients have no idea zero what makes a good attorney and zero. The reason why a Yale law degree, a Harvard law degree, a University of Chicago law degree, the reason why those degrees work is because the clients themselves have no freaking clue what zero. makes a good attorney. They know what makes a good businessman. They can say, "Have you won? Have you made business?" Okay, but I mean, what are you gonna? You can't have a lawyer win loss record. That doesn't tell you anything. No, you know, you can't. I put it up, and they still don't believe me. <laughs> Never been beaten in my real so, estate closings. So that's the reason why this profession is more prestige focused, conscious than most others, is because the clients themselves have no idea what makes a good attorney. So yeah, Target say Walmart's attorneys are crap. We're going to charge you a little bit more for a little bit better. But I, the clients aren't going to know that. In the perfect world, yes. But look online. Um, I have amazing Yelp reviews. It means zero for the next case, and I say that flat out. I could be a complete shit and have no idea what I'm doing in a particular case just because six other clients said I was good. I'm a rising star, super lawyer rising star. I have no idea what the hell, like literally zero idea what that means. Was I not a star before? When do I, what, what, what level do I How rise How old do you have to be to no longer Apparently, be rising? You, you can be 18 and become a rising star. I have no idea at what point you become a middle-aged star. Are you now, is your gas out at some point? Like I have no goddamn idea. I know people that, you know, if you go on Avo or a lot of these sites, I don't know if it's Avo or Avo, whatever it is, and a lot of these sites... There's attorneys that have like 150 reviews that are the, – the syntax is identical. Yep. And you know, you know it's a machine that just constantly churns this out and does Just like this. shopping for a car. Right. Just like shopping <laughs> for a car. It's like, what a beautiful Malibu. Chevy Malibu is amazing, right? And there's a picture of a car on fire. It, 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 clients have no clue now. So, I mean – but I also think that there is um, this – amazing abundance of information where if you Google enough and if you do enough research, you could find someone that's actually good. But it's not, that's, I think if you're saying that, you know, these Walmart attorneys may be crap, how do you know if anyone's crap now? Like, how do you protect them? Why would this somehow protect them more if you said, no, 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 don't open the gates to Walmart? Like, how do you know that someone, you don't. It's a complete, and I would say it's even worse now because it used to be that someone would recommend an attorney, right? It is no longer the case. So I did. Those are the those are the only Hazion days that I want to go back to. That's it, right? Where you had to get an attorney by word of mouth. By word of mouth, and you knew that this person was not a convicted felon. Uh, you know, did not do crack cocaine during lunch, and actually did a deal really, really well. They knew your family. They knew your family. Yeah. He's a great guy. He almost married my daughter. He's a loser now. But it, yeah. I mean, like something like that is huge, right? Because it's word of mouth and it's trust. That's gone. Mm-hmm. My bankruptcy practice was set up because no one talks about bankruptcy at dinner. They're never like, oh, I wish I could pay for this dinner, but all my credit cards are declined. <laughs> you couldn't be the call was repossessed a week ago. You got to call Gershberg. It doesn't happen, right? It doesn't happen. So you put something up on Yelp and you have a couple stars, whatever it is, and people contact you. That is the worst thing that's ever happened, I, I think, for law mm-hmm. to a certain extent because everyone started doing this over and over again. And now you can't cut through the morass. There is no referrals anymore. There's just testimonials. You don't know if they're fake. So I don't know... I, I would go the other way. I'd say open the gates. See what's out there, mm. right? If it's crap and you know it's crap over and over, like we the people, 
everyone knows it's. So, what do you think about like? What do you think about the courts? You want to open the gates? What do you think about the courts opening up that allow non-lawyers to do some legal work, like a will? Why do you actually have to have a lawyer do your will? I don't know. I, I listen. If you have. Let's say you have ten thousand dollars. Kill the job market for everybody. <laughs> Completely, because I think it should be killed to a certain extent. I think complex wills have their place, and I think that there should be someone that knows how to do a complex will do this. I don't think that there's any specific specialized training when you do a simple will. They're just—I don't care what you're telling me. There isn't. It's one doc that you use over and over again with some small variations. And I think if someone is supervised, a paralegal is supervised. And they go to inner cities, and they go to poor counties, and they say, open day at court, get your will reviewed by volunteer lawyers that are supervising these paralegals. I think there's nothing wrong with it. I think there's a lot of areas of law. Well, look, I think that there's things wrong with it. I think the pros may outweigh the cons in those scenarios. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I just think that it kills business. Of course, it, but it should be killed. It should. There is. That's that's kind of what I'm saying. It's ridiculous because I'm, you know, a, a small firm attorney. But I think there's certain segments of it we have to get over this bullshit that this is going to be the same way it's been for 30 years. It won't. There wasn't Uber before. You know, there wasn't Zipcar before. So you had to get your own car. That's one way of going. I mean, the other way of going, really, and, and I'll show my true stripes here, right? Please. Like the other way of going is is. This isn't what we do for doctors, right? In the, in this country, we have an understanding that there's some basic level of medical care that is so important to our citizens that we will let doctors charge the government whatever the hell they want. Right. That we will let doctors charge your insurance company whatever the hell they want so that you get basic care when you fall down the steps and your ankles get, gets busted, right? Right. We have, that under, we have that commitment in this country. Why don't we have it for law? Like why 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 don't we have a situation? Granted, I know why they're called Republicans, but <laughs> why don't we have a system in this country where we have an understanding, we have a compact that says you are kind of entitled to a certain amount of legal services over the course of your life. Maybe it's a legal insurance company, maybe it's direct government payments, but some setup where 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 you were able to go and get attorneys. Who would then be paid not out of your pocket, but out of out of a community pool? Because we realize it's all better. It's better for all of us if, when you're in a car accident, both of you are represented by competent attorneys. Um, for it's never going to happen, right? It's but, never going to happen for a variety of reasons. Because if you ever even equate, uh, we want the government to pay for lawyers, people will literally just light their hair on fire and run around the streets with pitchforks. Yes, they they won't know what to do. We'll we'll, we'll lose. I mean, literally, we'll lose the union. The union will be gone. Lincoln Lincoln would have had nothing on this. We would have lost the union. That was it. Would be just separate states, right? Um, and I think because the market can solve that. And when I say the market, I don't mean, you know, you can charge a specific amount. There's nothing stopping people that want to learn wills from, you know, volunteering their time on Fridays after work or on weekends or whatever it is to go to a pro bono organization, go to a, a particular place and say, I'm going to do. So, for instance, the Brooklyn Bar Association. I learned bankruptcy by doing pro bono work. Right. I just went to the Brooklyn Bar. I said, I don't know anything about this. And they said, pop in this VHS. They're a little antiquated. <laughs> and I watched this over and over again. And I did these bankruptcy petitions for, you know, underprivileged people. They had no idea what was going on. And I learned how to do it. There is nothing stopping anyone from from sort of doing this. Right. I don't think that the, the government should even get involved in something like this, because I think there's more than enough people for, you know, for someone to come in and say, look, I want to start a wills practice. I want to do complex wills. You could do one of two things. Well, right now you work at a personal injury law firm or an insurance defense law firm and all day you're at compliance conferences, right? So you're not going to learn wills at work. Or you could take the time out of your day and whatever on the weekends to learn about it and start doing work like this and helping people out. I think when I say open the gates, I just mean that 
the purpose for a lot of this regulation was to protect people in a time where they would be inundated with these advertisements, right? Lawyers can advertise in a particular way. They can't say they're bulldogs, even right. though they say it half the time, right? Because people just don't know. Well, I mean, you're being nice. The purpose for a lot of these regulations were to keep out Jewish people. Correct. To keep out the Jews. <laughs> like, to keep out the Jews. Just like the what, country clubs. Just like the country clubs. Just like Germany. I mean, there was, there's, a, there's a slew of, slew of different <laughs> things. But we broke through like we always do, goddammit. <laughs> Israel power. So, so <laughs> here, here comes the hate mail. So um, I, I think there's something to be said for essentially saying, look, there should be people practicing in specific situations that are non-attorneys to meet neighborhood needs for non-complex situations. Because otherwise, we're just kind of kissing our own asses and saying well, what we do is so insanely important that we have to go through three years of a law school. Like I never learned bankruptcy in law school. I learned bankruptcy because I did pro bono stuff. Most people that do wills, maybe they took a wills class in law school, but they didn't know wills. Yeah, they took property first year and they were like, oh, yeah, well, okay. this is it. All right, adverse possession. I'm going to make a million bucks, <laughs> right? So it's still a good idea. So, you know, I, I, think it's, I think it's totally fine, in my opinion, to open it up. Just see what happens, right? I don't think that the consumer is going to be hurt any more than they're hurt now in some of these shit shows, specifically New York, to be perfectly honest with you, right? Look, we're gonna have it we're gonna have every opportunity to to as it, before in our lifetime we're gonna have every opportunity to play this out because I do believe that Walmart is coming. Yeah. Like I like th- that's that's the next phase of this thing, right? Yeah. We we we're we're still going through out for the big law firms, we're still going through outsourcing, we're still going through insourcing. That hasn't fully shaken out yet. But you know, legal zoom is just the tip of this iceberg and and we'll, you know, ten years. We should, we, we'll see. We'll I'll see be where unemployed. We are. I'll be unemployed. Uh, I'll be a guest blogger at ATL, uh, getting no pay, and uh, that'll be it. No, I, I think that's right. And just one last example: in the typical real estate closing, um, I don't know if you noticed that your did you have a bank attorney that was there? Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's three clients, and sometimes three. Or, there's another attorney. Did, did the seller have a mortgage that they had to pay off? Yes. Okay, so someone had to come pick up that check, yep. right? Okay. So in the typical closing in New York, you have four attorneys. I was so right? afraid because they were like, they kept holding the keys. And I was just like, just yeah, no, no, just, just give it to me. You should have leaped over the thing itself. <laughs> Enough. There's there's four attorneys there. They're all charging thousands, right? A bank attorney, essentially, essentially, um, for the most part, when they represent the bank, they come in and it's not even an attorney. They come in with I don't know sixty pages. They say you have to sign here. This is. And you said, well, what about this? What no questions, no questions. Yep. I'm not an attorney. And they make a thousand dollars. It is hardly yeah, his iPhones, right. put earbuds in. You give time. a shit. <laughs> He's got six more lined up. It's totally fine. So I think just the, the the closing thing is that you know law has to be more efficient. That's a that's a cliche sort of code word, but it's coming. Whether as you said, whether we like it or not, I think it's going to change the way um, it's actually uh, it's actually practiced. Um, last couple of things I want to touch upon. David Lack. Yeah. Wrote a book. Yes, he did. Okay. Did he do this to make you look bad? And <laughs> I noticed that you wrote a, a forward in, in Brian Tannenbaum's book, uh-huh. The Practice, which I hold in my hands uh, right now. Um, T-bomb. T-bomb. And I'm, I'm reselling this, guys, online. If anybody wants to uh, – wants to, I, I bought it for $35. i would be willing to sell it for 20 so just email me. And I'll, No, I'm kidding. It's actually a fantastic book. Um, what what's next for you? I mean, is this something that you know? It, do you want to write books? Do you want to do that stuff? Is that David Last territory? I mean, what, what what's the story there? I want to there, act. No, you want to act? <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. Um, look, I I would love if you know MSNBC is looking for you know weekend correspondent to break up their fifteen straight hours of lockdown coverage. <laughs> 
Somebody can give me a call. I'm just saying. So much Ebola. <laughs> so much Ebola. I mean, they would probably have to hire me a personal trainer but to no. fit on screen. But beyond <laughs> no, that, no, like, no, no. I think not. we're good. They would not. You should actually, if they did that, you should act completely sick on camera and then just pass out off screen. <laughs> and that would just literally, that would cause, you would go viral beyond belief. You would have speaking engagements everywhere. I recovered from Ebola in three hours. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, book writing is great. Uh, I have a couple ideas. I, I write a lot already, so yeah. So, you, so, you're so done kind of that. writing in my free time is not really what I want to do. I, I, I do. I, I like the. I, I try to explain to friends who who haven't been on. You know, it, the the only analogy I can think of is cocaine. There, if you go on TV and you like it, it's like cocaine, and you go on and it's hyped. And it's fun, and it's over way too quickly, and as soon as you're done, you're like, where can I get some more cocaine? <laughs> right, I've heard. <laughs> so, I've so, heard. so my friends said. So my friends, yeah, that's uh, for my friends. Um, for my friends and TV, TV is like that for me, where where I, I, my, I, I work kind of well in that s- setup, so I would like to do more of that. I think, though, that those are all kind of professional concerns. Like, I, like we've been talking at various points in this, in this podcast. It's about a house. I've got a two-year-old. Yeah. Like that shit is great too, yeah. and it it ne- I never forget. You know, one of the things that I do that's sometimes hard for the people that I work with, but to the extent that I can, like after a certain hour, like I turn all this stuff off, I unplug, and I kind of I never forget that one of the big reasons why I am here is because I wanted to be able to spend more time with my family and friends, and so I try to actually spend right. <laughs> you know, to the extent that I can, that time with family and friends. And I don't like to have this kind of stuff kind of encroach upon that time. Even if that time is just kind of have you you're sitting around playing video games with my little kid on his right. lap and I'm playing a shooter. I'm like, ooh, daddy got tagged in the face. <laughs> oh, that's tag juice all over the screen right now. Oh, no. <laughs> like, I, like, I, I, I enjoy that. I understand. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's totally normal. Not at all insane. <laughs> Last question. He's not going to have any problems. No, no, he's totally. totally He's he's going to law school. He's totally fine. Last question I have for you, and I and I bring this up because I did read Brian's book, and it's awesome. Um, Scott uh, Greenville is also a a mentor of mine, and he. So I was I was looking at googling your name, obviously, and awesome article that he wrote about you. I think in 2011 came up, and they were they don't even know it half the time but they were mentors that that stopped me from going over the edge and drinking the Kool-Aid of all the marketing lawyers and you know starting to do consulting and all the yeah, bullshit yeah, yeah. that comes with it um, and showed me what a real lawyer actually does did you have someone like that to sort of mentor you in this role or or who do you sort of turn to for guidance when it comes to something like this if there is anyone that you have oh for blogging for blogging for law for anything generally oh jeez no we're this is no, <laughs> this is just you. You don't do no, shit. No, you're well. It's it's you know my job didn't exist ten years ago, and there's no idea that's going to ex- exist ten years from now. You know what's an naming an old blogger? You know there's Andrew Sullivan, right? He's old and he blogs. There was Andrew Breitbart. He dropped dead. He dead. He dead. And literally, a funny story about Breitbart. So I do a Fox show, Mike Huckabee show, and. The week before it, Breitbart died. You do Mike Huckabee's show? Yeah. Jesus. Fox loves to have me on as kind of the liberal. Yeah, the crazy, token. Yeah, yeah. 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 Hey, crazy liberal, <laughs> tell us why <laughs> Obama isn't giving us Ebola. Look Explain yourself. Yeah. Right? Um, Explain yourself. <laughs> uh, Mike Huckabee's a very nice man. But he, he had me on with Breitbart um, to do little, you know, whatever. And, you know, on, on air, we were blah, 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 blah. Backstage, man, it turns out that Breitbart and I thought about this profession. Right. 
shockingly similar to me. Way more similar than I would have thought, right? And kind of made me want to, like, go home and clean myself a little bit afterwards. But, like, you know, in terms of, like, what what user engagement actually looks like and what, what you're supposed to, you know, we have different views on the importance of facts, I would say. Sure. But, right. but how to marshal what facts you believe. Right. In certain ways, it was we were really quite similar in our thought processes, um, and that man dropped dead a week after I met him. Are you serious? Right? A week you know, after? like a week after I met him was when he died. And if you hear the story about he died, he died. He was got into an argument with somebody at a bar. Is and, that right? And he was out of a heart attack, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, argues about Simon Bar and had a heart attack. You know, like five minutes later or whatever. But he was always having arguments. Um, exactly. Yeah. As as it turns out, am I? So. <laughs> So when you when you say like you know the mentor, it's like oh that guy kind of he's dead. So right. probably not the best. Okay, you you I think about my career as, as very like it didn't exist ten minutes ago. It might not exist ten minutes from now. So you're, it's very you're, you're, in the moment. you're kind of not trying to. I try not to think too much about positioning myself for the next thing because as far as I know, the next thing hasn't been invented yet. Way to think. And so you just try to you know stay stay in the moment stay stay tight. I mean, it's I'm I'm lucky that I write for a news site because you know as I'm sure anybody who's read me knows and anybody who's done this for any length of time knows. You know, you can get your head up your own ass. Like right. you can, you know, I do a lot of commentary and you can get your head stuck, kind of lodged up there about what the hell point you're trying to make. And, <laughs> and working for a news site is really helpful because it kind of brings you back to like, oh wait, this just happened. You know, this right. new thing just happened. It has nothing to do with whatever navel-gazing I was engaged in yesterday. Like, this actually happened today, and we need to talk about it. So that that's really, I think, helpful for kind of grounding and, sure. and keeping me in the moment. But, yeah, it's a very kind of in-the-moment profession, I think. Um, I want to thank you tremendously <laughs> for coming and shooting the show with me for about an hour and a half. Um, it was phenomenal. Um I mean, I think people know where to find you, but if they need to find you and they're checking out my podcast, please. <laughs> um, oh, God. Ellie, E-L-I-E-N-Y-C. That's my Twitter handle. Done. <laughs> that's what I do a lot of. Done. Done. Ellie, thank you so much for coming. I appreciate it. Thank man. you, man. Thank you. Okay. Cheers. Cheers.